Welcome to Execute Chapter 66, a Star Wars fiction podcast where we discuss canon, legends, and beyond. Tonight, we will be discussing Dark Lord, The Rise of Darth Vader, a 2005 novel by James Lucino. My name is Beth Van Dusen, and of course, with me as always are Ryan Schweck and Chad Schonk. Over to you, Chad. This is your reminder that this is a book club and not a review show. We are going to be spoiling this book, so we assume that you've either done the reading or do not care. In the course of our conversation, we may also spoil anything else Star Wars, up to and including the latest High Republic stuff, the latest season of Mandalorian, what have you. So that has been your spoiler warning. Ryan, is there anything going on? The last couple of weeks have been pretty slow. Uh, yeah, they haven't been as crazy as they usually are, but we've gotten some good new material that goes along with our podcast. First, they announced that E.K. Johnson, the last book in the, I guess they're calling it the Queen Trilogy or the Padme Trilogy, is going to be called The Queen's Hope. Originally, I guess it was called The Queen's Gambit, but Netflix went ahead and stole that one, so they decided to change it. Uh, I, I know we were talking that I think one of the funniest things, they have like a nice little like synopsis, and they're talking about how Anakin is the happiest he's ever been right after Attack of the Clones, which, you know, is the one where his mom got murdered by the same people. And then he murdered the same people. Yeah, so, you know, Anakin on top. Um, but I'm looking forward to that one. I'm guessing E.K. Johnson didn't write that summary. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious <laughs> to see what exactly that is. But, you know, you don't get a lot of happy Anakin. I'm really excited. I like the other two books. And I one thing that has never been explored, and Johnson was talking about this on, on Twitter, one thing that's never been explored really is their relationship, is their marriage. Yeah, even in Clone Wars, it's not real clear it's not real you know you don't see it like why would she really be in love with this dude and we've talked about that being a problem so maybe she can do what we want all of our prequel era writers to do Mm -hmm. and and fix it a little bit and make us understand their relationship and it's hard to think of them as married because we never really see that so i think trying to show how they would interact as a couple and how they would deal with what they're dealing with I, i think sounds great yeah uh on the comic side after some teasing, we're getting a new, I guess it would be a mini series called War of the Bounty Hunters. Um, it's by Soul. They've actually got Steve McNiven, who's going to do the art on it, which is, a you know, that's one of Marvel's top guns. And so this thing's going to get a lot of press, I think. They're going to get a lot of promotion to it. I mean, the art they've released so far looks great. Uh, my only issue is, is it's once again a story of what did Boba Fett do between Empire and Turn of the Jedi. And I feel like they have explored that enough. I've read enough stories. Yeah, but that's the era they're in in the comics, right? <laughs> it is, I guess. I mean, outside outside of High Republic or yeah. whatever, but like the era they're exploring in the comics, in the main comics, is that era still. Yeah, I just, it's a story we've seen before, and I kind of wish we got to see it again, but I'm sure it'll be good. I'm going to read it. I would rather see the story of how he crawled out of the Sarlacc, but I have a feeling that's being safe for television. Yeah, I don't think they would go any further forward past Return of the Jedi. I would like to see more like new canon training of Boba Fett, like how when he's like a crappy bounty hunter. How did he? I'm confused by the title because they already have a book called Bounty Hunters. They do. And actually, I read the new issue today. I don't love it. I I think I said this before. I, I don't love it. And then when it shows up on my iPad on Comixology, it sits there for until I get about four issues built up and I read them all at once and I go, yeah, that's pretty good. (laughs) And then the next time I just let another four build up because I just don't care enough, but I don't dislike it either. 
Yeah, I mean, I like some of the characterizations they did, like kind of Zuckus and Forlom were really good. Valance just isn't interesting. I just don't. Yeah, he's budget Kano. Like, I don't care. He's generic. He's so generic. What else do we have going on? Some interesting uh, Disney Plus news. Uh, Roger D. Moore, who is, I guess, most famous for Battlestar reboot, right? I'm listening. I'm listening. So he has signed a development deal with Disney Plus, and his initial pitches are to Lucasfilm. They confirm. That could get real interesting. Mm. Obviously, it would be way out, but... That that could be very exciting. I, I think it's interesting they might be starting to pull in some bigger names. Speaking of bigger names, apparently Ryan Johnson's still working on his movies. You know, they didn't talk about it in Investor Day, and then this week they confirmed that, or he confirmed, that he was still working on them, which I was a little surprised by. Interesting. They're all going to be about the kid with the broom. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be his origin story. That would be amazing. That's our biggest news. Look, we all know what the big story was. I don't think we need to talk about it anymore. Other than the fact that if you have a Cara Dune action figure, hold on to them because they aren't making them anymore. (laughs) Yeah, we talked about that last week. It came out. It happened live while we were talking talking last time. Right. I think we we covered it pretty thoroughly. Yeah. I believe I believe what we came down to is uh, good. Yeah, and and they aren't recasting the character, so they're not. No, they are not. It's it's going to be a Poochie. She died on her way back to her home planet. <laughs> Pretty much exactly what it is. Um, I mean, she's free to go off, and who was she hooking up with? Like Ben Silverman or whatever. She yeah. said she was going to go off with him and make a television for the Daily Wire too, or something. It's something. Yeah. Good luck, sucker. Go with Crom. Yeah. It's it's very like <laughs> your your words have consequences, and, yeah. and there's a there's a point. And, and although we should clarify, the, the thing that really pushed it over the limit was she compared being a conservative to being a Jew in Nazi Germany. It wasn't necessarily the trans comments. That's what's got her on probation. But she compared being a conservative in America to being a Jew in the Holocaust. Um, and then our, our final piece, this isn't so much news. It's just a, an image. I think mostly for Beth. We now know what Obi-Wan Kenobi was doing on Tatooine. And apparently it was getting ripped. <laughs> If you have not seen <laughs> Ewan McGregor in his Obi-Wan ready. Oh, snap. I got to look that up right now. Apparently, Obi-Wan's getting beefy. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, he's out there doing a lot of hard labor in the sun. Yeah, that's all the news we have for this week. That only means one thing. That means he's going to have shirtless scenes. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> he's got his damn robes. So an actor only does that if he's going to have shirtless scenes. Do you think you can use the force to, like, work out? I mean, obviously you could use it to lift the weights. But do you think you could, like, force your muscles into a six-pack? I mean, I always assume they already are like that. But then there are some that are kind of schlubby, I guess. Yeah. But, like, I guess it's like a Travis Bickle thing. Like, he's got nothing else to do out there in the desert. Uh, in the desert, So he just works out. It's like oh, being in prison. Could we please get, like, a... Rocky montage of Obi-Wan <laughs> in the desert, like running up dunes and lifting up rocks with his hands. Well, he's got a vaporator to work on. He's got work to do. Wrestling a crate dragon, you know, <laughs> just like a giant montage to some kind of, I don't know, song by Survivor or something. <laughs> All right, Chad, 
I think we've got a special occasion to talk about this evening. We do. This is our one year anniversary. Uh, one year ago today, give or take, our first episode came out. We've managed to put out, um, where are we at now? 20, 20 episodes plus a bonus episode in a year. So a little less than every other week, but we're speeding up a little bit. The, the first months were a little, uh, a little more sporadic. And uh, so what we'd like to do is take a look back on this past year, and we're each going to just pick our best in show, pick what we, our favorite thing that we read in the last year that is not Darth Plagueis. Just want to get that out of the way. This is the, this is an award for best thing we read, not called Darth Plagueis. If we were to pick our favorite thing that we read for this show, I think that would probably be all of our choices. So who wants to go first? Mine is, I think, not the best thing that we've read but more of the payoff to it. And that's Rise of the Resistance. Mm. I think doing the podcast got me more on the schedule of reading Star Wars books when they came out versus, and I'll wait till later, I'll wait till the paperback, whatever, whatever. And keeping up with it like that made that payoff of all those characters in one book that they'd all been leaned to this so much more rewarding. And I don't think I would have done that if we hadn't been doing this. That is absolutely true. Like I'm, re- I'm reading stuff much faster than I would have, and you know I would normally have a backlog on my Kindle of of stuff. And uh, now it's keeping me from reading anything else, which is a problem. Right. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely agree with that. And and I did enjoy that book. Mm-hmm. Me too. I'm gonna go ahead. I wouldn't have expected this, but I was looking at all the books that we have read, and I think the one I think was the best, and was written the best, and my favorite was actually Chaos Rising. Thrawn Ascendancy Part 1. I was not super stoked for a new Thrawn book when uh, it was announced. But once I got my hands on those blue pages, it was kind of like High Republic for me. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not dissimilar from High Republic. Zahn took us to a whole nother place and, and a whole nother region that had nothing to do with the Skywalkers and Jedi or anything. And, and I thought it was just a really well-written, intricate vision of what the Chiss Ascendancy was and Chiss society in general, and probably my favorite depiction of Thrawn outside of, you know, the original books. Uh, and, and and the writing was really good. I think he kind of kicked it up a notch on that, too. I think the prose was great in uh, Chaos Rising, and I'm very much looking forward to greater good in the next one. Mm-hmm. That was actually on my short list because it was so different than any Thrawn we'd gotten before. I think the blue pages helped. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, it felt like an event almost. Yeah. Um, yeah, I missed I missed having that on my Kindle. They just had like a blue a blue screen. It gave me the feeling that I was anticipating and got, by the way, uh, with High Republic, mm-hmm. which was just displaced out of everything else, but still fascinating and very detailed. And, and you could tell he put a lot of thought into it. And I really like that book. It's one of the books in Disney canon where they let the author off his leash a little more. Yes. And I think that yeah. made it feel special. Because what's he going to mess up? He's not going to mess anything up for them. Beth, what's your number one, as if we don't know? Well, it's Poe Dameron Freefall. <laughs> just, just kidding. <laughs> nope, we got you on record. Podcast over. <laughs> I will delete anything you say after this. Is it Kevin? <laughs> it's always Kevin. I want a Kevin book. Um, and, and a Master Douglas book, by the way. There's so much to know before he <laughs> dies. Poor, poor, poor Master Douglas. <laughs> Of course, my favorite book is Kenobi because it was the space western I wanted before there was ever a Mandalorian show to watch. And 
it was what I wanted an Obi-Wan show to be back when they were still just rumoring it going to happen before it actually might be sort of going to happen. Still fingers crossed on that. Uh, I just think it's a great space Western. And I think that giving Obi-Wan some more depth is always good rather than just the failingest failure that ever failed, even though that's kind of what he is. But there's more to him than that. Yeah, I love that book. I would watch a straight up adaptation of that. Like, I secretly hope they're just stealing all of it for the show. That would be great. I just don't think they will, but that'd be great. That would have been my guess for you. If I was going to guess, I would have guessed Ryan would have said maybe Shadowfall. Maybe would have been my guess for Ryan. I was close to that one. (laughs) That would have been my guess. Uh, Anybody have any runners up before we move on? Anybody have any honorable mentions? I I would have guessed Ahsoka for you, Chad. I know. It's not even on my list. That's crazy. Wow. It's an honorable mention for me. Yeah, I mean, it would be too. I just listed two more in case we overlap some. Um, Light of the Jedi I have on here. I really, really love that book. Mm-hmm. And also Queen's Peril, which maybe should be Ahsoka, but Queen's Peril surprised me more. The fact that it was a prequel to episode one, kind of a on the sly prequel to episode one. I really enjoyed that. And I really enjoyed seeing the events of episode one from a different point of view from the point of view of the people of Naboo. I really enjoyed that section of the book quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was on my short list too. Anybody else got any honorable mentions before we move on? I think it was great when we made Beth read the Aftermath trilogy. <laughs> that was wonderful. We finally broke her down. Um, I'm not sure our episodes convinced anybody to go out and read them. Oh, and I, di- I did want to, I, I couldn't count it. Well, I, mean, I guess it counts, but I really liked Jedi Lost as well. I did too. Yeah. I thought Dooku Jedi Lost was great. Jedi Lost, I think, kind of gets lost in the conversation because it was an audio play and they only released it as this script. But there is so it is so rich. It actually answers a lot of questions that I think people still have. But if they listen to that or or read it, they might get. Um, So I, I wanted to give a shout out to that because I think it's overlooked. But we're not talking about any of those tonight. Maybe this w- book will be uh, on our list a year from now. We are going to talk about Dark Lord. Rise of Darth Vader by James Lucino. So this came out in 2005. It is, of course, not a canon book anymore. It is a legend. But we spent a lot of time in canon lately, so I thought it might be nice to to revisit a legend. And what better author to revisit than James Lucino? Never a problem. So even, even though this may not be the best Star Wars book we've ever read, even the not best James Lucino book is still a really great Star Wars book. Yeah, I think I'm going to be on the uh, I think I'm going to be uh, at odds in this because I, I think it's better than you guys are already making out. So go ahead. Well, during the Clone Wars, Jedi Roan Shrine and Bolshatak, along with her Padawan Oli Starstone, travel with some clones to take on Separatists on the planet Mercana. After completing their mission, the Jedi are headed back to meet up with the rest of the clones when Order 66 is issued. Clone leader Salvo orders... Climber, which is the most ridiculous name. They were really struggling to come up with some clone names at that point, I guess, to kill the Jedi. But because Shrine saved his life, Climber lets them go. Please remember that they do not have chips at this point. Vader heads on down to Mercana to handle what the clones couldn't, but only manages to kill Bolsh attack. Shrine and Starstone escape to a ship captained by Shrine's mom, who is Force-sensitive but had been hidden from the Jedi. Along with the crew of the Drunk Dancer, which as a ship name inspires zero confidence, 
the Jedi try to find a way to track down other survivors. Meanwhile, Vader is all up in his feelings about losing the Jedi and even throws a few Anakin-sized hissy fits about the droids and his outfit that torture him. So things start getting hairy for the Jedi and friends after almost getting killed a few times. And after saving another group of mostly useless Jedi, Shrine decides to split <laughs> off from Starstone and go be a smuggler with his mom. Starstone is off with the useless Jedi to try and find Yoda on Kashyyyk, which was his last known location. Shrine and friends head to Alderaan to try and free a senator wanted by Sheev, where they once again face Vader when he shows up to confront Bail Organa. And there is a nice few moments between Bail and Vader, which I enjoyed very much. We'll get to that. After yet another escape, Shrine gives up and realizes this is his destiny and goes looking for the Jedi on Kashyyyk, where a full-on Imperial invasion force shows up, taking out Wookiees and Jedi alike. While Starstone and the surviving Jedi escape with the help of Chewbacca, Shrine stays to fight to the death with Darth Vader, and guess how that goes? But as Shrine dies, he has a He wins, vision. right? He wins. <laughs> he wins, and, and it's totally rewritten. That's why it's not canon anymore. Cue the Ewok dance. <laughs> Yub nub. But as Shrine dies, he has a vision of the fall of the dark side that he shares with Vader, meaning he and Sheev are going to lose. No one sees that coming either. Overall, this is not the best Star Wars book to me. It is still a great book. It is still extremely well written because it is James Lucino and he has yet to fail for me anyway as a Star Wars reader I know that this book is part of what is it a trilogy uh what's treated as a trilogy now yeah. it is yeah I haven't read any of the other books so I I can't compare how it all ties together Labyrinth of Evil is Lucino that's part one and it's a prequel to Revenge of the Sith and then Matthew Stover wrote the novelization of Revenge of the Sith. And so that counts as part two. Mm. And this is part three. They're all very good. I will have to check the other two out when I can fit that into my life. I mean, it's a Lucino book you haven't read. Yeah. Surprisingly. And it probably is less applicable now because it's about the events leading up to episode three. And that's been completely rewritten by the Clone Wars. I don't mind. I, I still like Legends. It's been erased almost completely, yeah. I think. <laughs> Uh, unlike this, where there's a lot of this that, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the things that don't hold up at the end probably as well when we decide whether or not this could still be canon. But a lot of the story here could still happen. A lot of the story in Labyrinth of Evil just cannot anymore. So overall, I really liked this book. There are just a few things that I had some issues with, but there's also some really great things going on here. So overall, what did you guys think? <sighs> now, overall, <laughs> I liked it. I think... Where I struggle, and this is not the author's fault, it's not anybody around there, I still struggle with what Vader's story is now. We've seen a lot through Clone Wars where they kind of tried to show why Anakin fell and that it wasn't just this out-of-nowhere thing and that it made sense that he turned into Darth Vader. Um, and I think they're still struggling with it because you have this contrast between the Vader they present Versus the Vader you see in the original trilogy. Or the Vader they want to show sometimes who's just chopping people to pieces. This like unstoppable force. You know what I mean? Yeah, but there's a 20 year difference there. There is, but even in the comics now, they're still going with this, you know, inner monologue. Which I totally understand. Like, you know, you want Anakin as your 
your hero, and I guess not your hero, but he's I mean, he's more or less your protagonist through all the movies. He's the protagonist of the first six movies. I don't know. It's just hard. Now, I really like some of the stuff with Sheev, and God bless us reading this book this week because we're going to say Sheev about a gazillion times. <laughs> I, I like the I stuff with Sheev and how he, they set up like what he purposely did to Vader and kind of some of his internal stuff about how he set him up and what he would do to him. That's dead on. Like, that stuff yeah. is great. I just struggle still with, like, the characterization of Vader. Like, all right, old Padme's dead. I, I don't know. I've never had a good idea of why Vader, what his focus is past that. Besides this vague, I'm going to take over the galaxy and kill Sheep. Yeah, he doesn't have any of that. That's what I like. Um, So this book is, this is two books. One book is a very pat mediocre book about some surviving Jedi after you execute chapter 66. Sorry, <laughs> after order 66. <laughs> this book made me appreciate Light of the Jedi more because I didn't care about any of these Jedi. Yeah. Nearly as much as I did no. about the ones in Light of the Jedi. But I don't blame that, that on Lucino. These are prequel era Lucas Jedi that he is writing. He is going off what he has. He is going off the movies. He is going off what Lucas has given us. The Jedi during this time were a little more boring. And they fit in. And when I first read this, watch out, don't make Ryan mad. Most. <laughs> but when I read this 15 years ago, they felt completely fine to me. These Jedi reading it now, I'm like, oh, they have so their personalities are so muted and they're so uninteresting and they're so kind of uniform. Even shine, shine, shrine, shrine doesn't really do anything for me. And so I compare it to characters like Avar and uh, Vern and Kevin, <laughs> and I'm like, sorry, Kevin's not Kevin. Kevin will be a Jedi by the end of it. He will, we will find out he's force sensitive. <laughs> That's how he was able to do all that cool stuff with the droids. Uh, he forced he forced them together. So there's that part of the book which is fine. This is my favorite depiction of Vader and Palpatine. Yes, you're right. We go back to 1977, and you have this monster that is Darth Vader. But he's in this book. He is not Darth Vader yet. He just became him. Well, that's what I was going to say earlier. Is it, it's he's brand new. He's not Vader yet. And what I love about this book is the depictions of what it feels like to be him. Maybe not the turmoil about Padme and all that stuff, which I think is fine. But the fact you say what's driving him, what's it? He's trapped. He doesn't have a, a, a giant goal. He's trapped. He's trapped by the emperor. He's trapped by his actions and he's trapped by his suit. And this is why I kept bugging you guys about chapter 10. Chapter 10 of this book goes through a very intricate description of how Vader is built. Vader turned and moved for the hatch. And then in italics, Vader thinking it says, but this is not walking, he thought. And then he keeps doing that. This is not hearing. This is not seeing. And after he does that, he explains because he's not walking. These are servo motors. This isn't hearing. His eardrums were completely burned out with lava. This is digital, right? It goes into, and I just want to read one little segment. Allowing his lungs to fill with air, he thought, this is not breathing. Here, the med droids had truly failed him. From a control box he wore strapped to his chest, a thick cable entered his torso, linked to a breathing apparatus and heartbeat regulator. The ventilator was implanted in his hideously scarred chest, along with tubes that ran directly into his damaged lungs and others that entered his throat, so that should the chest plate or belt control panels develop a glitch, he could breathe unassisted for a limited time. But the monitoring panel beeped frequently and for no reason, and the constellation of lights served only as a steady reminders of his vulnerability. 
The incessant rasp of his breathing interfered with his ability to rest, let alone sleep. And sleep, in the rare moments it came to him, was a nightmarish jumble of twisted, recurrent memories that unfolded to excruciating sounds. I had never thought before reading this how awful it must be to be him. Not just being evil, like everyone, I mean, it'd be cool to be able to choke people from, you know, miles away, but how painful and sad and just excruciating it is to live like this. He is a nub of a human being. He's got no limbs left. He, all of his, his, his arms and legs are all mechanical things that are hooked up to little nerve endings in his body to simulate feelings. This helmet that he can't breathe without, like, you know, it explains in the book that he built his uh, his his meditation chamber just so he could take his helmet off, just so he could breathe, you know, for a few seconds without the mask on. It's horrifying. It's a it's a true horror show of what it's like to be in there. The fact that the suit is kind of cheap. And I, I like that. It's a little meta joke. The fact that if you go back to New Hope, the suit looks kind of cheap looking. Yeah, I did like that. It's purposely cheap. The first thing that struck me was what it feels like to be Darth Vader, what it feels like to be in this suit that we have, you know, been in awe of since 1977, but is literally just a torture chamber for a, you know, stump of a man who failed himself and the galaxy and his friends and everyone. And who knows it, but is constantly trying to rationalize what he did. And, uh, and and we can get to that. I, there's a section later about Padme that I I really like um, where he talks about how things would have played out if Padme hadn't turned on him that I think is really cool. The things that I love in this book are everything but the story. (laughs) Yeah. Context is everything because I was at work earlier when you were messaging us and I thought that you were saying this was the part you had a problem with, which was going to upset me because I was all prepared to be like, okay, so wait, this is the only part of the book that's good. Mm -hmm. I mean, great, actually, because the rest of the book is good. It's fine. Yeah. Everybody dies like Kit Fisto. They just show up and they die. But this part is is the part that makes you understand how Darth Vader comes to be Darth Vader. Because he's not yet. He's got the name. And yeah, he killed he killed some younglings or two. But still, like, he's brand new. And he's trapped in this thing. And he's just learning. And part of the story of this book, the part of the, the story of this book that I like is him growing into his suit a little bit more, growing into this persona a little bit more, embracing this a little bit more and, and and like ryan said palpatine's machinations to get him to do so there is some definitely good stuff with like him learning to be vader i think there's like one where he talks about how he masters that crossing his arms and putting his hands on his hips like the things we saw in new hope and they have him like doing it to uh impose on people i mean what do you do when you're stuck in something like that you, where, where do you put your hands yeah. i mean it sounds silly but like but i think that stuff also works psychologically as well in my synopsis, I talk about his Anakin-sized hissy fits, and that's not me making a joke. I mean, Anakin threw a lot of pissy little fits. It's He's he's screaming about how useless the droids are. They are useless. They screwed him. Yeah, Palpatine didn't do him a whole lot of favors by bringing no. him back to life. Palpatine did himself a favor. Mm-hmm. This is the first episode in months we've been allowed to say she even you guys aren't using it enough. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're right. But but no, he they do talk about Sheev. They do with Sheev. You know, the reason he resurrected Vader was because he needs him because he needs like he was like, I can't find another apprentice and I'm definitely not going to find an apprentice that's as powerful as Anakin Skywalker. Right. You know, and, and, and even though if he's not 100 percent who he was, like he's better than anything I had before. He's the most powerful force user that we've ever seen. And so 
you know, and Palpatine says, I didn't predict this part. And he's not happy about this part. He's not happy that Anakin is now this cyborg, you know, Frankenstein. Sorry, this cyborg Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> he's not he's not he's not happy about that. He 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 finds it to be a problem. And he finds that in and part of the story of this book is him dealing with the fact that he does not have the apprentice he thought he was going to have. Because Vader doesn't want anything anymore, because he was stripped of everything. He's not even, at least at the beginning of the book, or at least Palpatine's fear, is that Vader doesn't want what every Sith apprentice wants, which is to usurp his master and to conquer the dark side on their own and, and embrace the dark side on their own. And part of what he wants to do in this, and it says in here, to his own detriment, he's like, I got to get him to want to kill me. I, I have to get Vader to a place where he wants to kill me. You know, I, I need to embody the power while he needs to seek it. And, and it's... It puts me in danger, but it's the way of the Sith. I did like part of Sheev's plan, though, was like, I guess the way he saw it was that Anakin was going to show back up with Padme and then Sheev was going to kill him. <laughs> and that was his plan. And and that I can I can buy a little more. But like you said, like, I just even here, Vader. He has to get Vader on board with the Sith way and all that stuff. And I just once Padme's dead, I just don't know how they I've never felt that motivation for Vader, why he would continue, if that makes sense. What, why not? What ends up happening in Revenge of the Sith is that he makes a decision. He does not go there to embrace the dark side, right? right. He makes a decision in a, in a fit of anger. Actually, not even in anger. He makes a decision in fear when he takes out Mace Windu's arm, right? right. It's something he does in fear. But after he does that, there's no going back. There's no going back to the life he led. And he knows that. And this book kind of you know, and, and he fantasizes in this in in this novel, which I loved. He fantasizes about, well, what if Padme hadn't interfered? Would Padme have been able to forgive me? Would Padme have come around? Would our children be the next generation of Sith if she hadn't died? And there's a there's a very cheeky joke in here about her dying of a broken heart that someone makes. I thought it was really cute. Yeah. <laughs> he even fantasizes like what what would it what would have happened? Because once he made that decision, once he Yes, it doesn't quite 100% gel. A lot of that is Hayden Christensen, and a lot of that is the script. But once he decide, he chooses Palpatine in that moment, and like I said, I don't think it's a decision. I think it's an instinct. There's nowhere else for him to go. He is in with Palpatine now, and now that he's encased in this thing, it's either this or be dead. Now, one can argue that maybe he should want to be dead. But if that, if not, then... You know, then then I don't know what else he's supposed to be doing. Like he's he's dug his he's dug his own grave or he's yeah. he's he's painted himself into a corner where there's nothing else to do. And again, we're at the beginning of his journey. By the time we get to A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back, he is the cold blooded monster. It's like in Solo, like when we at the end of Solo, Han's like, he's not a bad kid. And then he's going to spend the next however many years becoming the selfish, more selfish scoundrel. And Vader's kind of the, the same way. Like, no, he's not. He's not 100% on board at this point. You know what I think would change it for me? And this is just totally <laughs> hypothetical, never happened. I think if Padme had died different, and all you got to do is instead of Vader choking her, if she had just, you know, maybe she got hit by some lava or a rock fell on her or something while they were fighting. <laughs> and so there's another reason for him to blame Obi-Wan. And I know they kind of do the gymnastics with him to show that he still blames Obi-Wan on that. But if, yeah. if it had been a little more like, man, these Jedi really screwed up and there was chaos and Padme died because of it. All right, I'm going to bring order to the whole universe. I think I buy it a little more. 
See, I don't think he cares about order for the whole universe. That's not that's not where his mind is. It may become that, and it, it, he may have had those inclinations before. That would be like down the line. I, I could see like an yeah. initial like she died because of them, which he kind of does, but I think it could be. Well, he said, yeah, because if Obi Wan hadn't showed up on Mustafar, he has this fantasy in his head that he could have talked her out of it. Yeah, that he could have talked her back to his side, and that together they would kill Palpatine and and basically be king and queen yeah. of the Republic. You know, like they, they, he, he, he keeps trying to justify what he did and what he is currently doing to himself because he is trapped in this prison of his own making and, and a little bit of Sheev's making and some terrible medical droids. Apparently he's trapped in this prison of his own making with no, no recourse. There's no place for him to go. There's no, you know, redemption is something that's not even close to his mind at this point. The most dangerous person in the world really is someone who's already convinced that they're damned. What do they have to lose? He's doomed. He's damned. And he's just got to live on hate. And what he does over the course of this book is he develops another fantasy. It's not a fantasy about him and Padme living happily ever after with their little kid and whatever. The fantasy is now him taking out Palpatine, taking out Sheev, which is what Sheev wants for him to want to destroy him like every Sith apprentice has before. Mm -hmm. To me, that was the story that I loved the on the run Jedi stuff. Like I said, pretty meh. It was fine. It was just, we've seen it, but we've seen it before. Yeah. yeah. And we'll, and we'll see it again. One thing I want to talk about before I move tar- too far away from it is Yoda and Obi-Wan are alive. She and Vader know it in this book. They know that they're out there and, and Vader, Anakin, I don't, I have a hard time thinking of him, him as Vader in this book, because to me, he's still so Anakin. He has to keep convincing himself that Anakin's dead. He says it many yeah. times. Yeah. Anakin Skywalker is dead. He is so focused on killing these rando Jedi, but he knows Obi-Wan is out there and he blames Obi-Wan for everything that went wrong in his life. He blames Obi-Wan for all of it, but he can track all these other randos down. To me, these randos are a, they're a proxy for Obi-Wan for him. Yeah. He doesn't know where Obi-Wan is. He doesn't know where Yoda is. He can't go back and smack, you know, Kit Fisto in the mouth. (laughs) He can chase these random Jedi and take out his anger towards the entire order, which is really focused towards Obi-Wan. The grievance politics Palpatine has given him to blame everyone but himself. I think, I think they're proxies. I think they're stand-ins for who he really well, this this book does somersaults around finding ways for Anakin to never want to go back to places that cause him pain. And I know we've discussed this before with, oh, now he's never going to want to go back to Naboo. Now he's never going to want to go back to Tatooine because those places cause him pain, even though he builds a house on Mustafar, which is the place where he got the most pain. But I don't think like he doesn't go back to Tatooine and Naboo because those are happy memories. Mustafar's fine because that's anger, sadness, and his new little—that's where he gets his little power from now. Mustafar's pain and failure. He's like a god. He doesn't want to listen to happy music. <laughs> I mean, fair. He is a sci-fi goth. You know, the Smiths is only the only music that plays on Mustafar. Nothing happy <laughs> is happening. And honestly, even he's disappointed in Morrissey <laughs> these days. <laughs> but okay, so Obi Wan has still, and we haven't done any literary gymnastics to figure out reasoning for this obi-wan is still living on anakin's home planet with a child named skywalker living with 
Anakin's stepbrother. That's not too tough to track down. No, and Lucino does his best at the end to try to make that make sense. But yes, that's all. But that's that's a flaw in the design. I I know that's a that's a Lucas that's a Lucas thing that they can't fix. But yeah, it's just that's just a fundamental thing you just have to look past. It's a sticking it's a sticking point for me. Like I've never understood. I get it. And it, it doesn't make sense why his name isn't Luke Lars. His name should be Luke Lars. But it's just something that everyone <laughs> Star Wars people have inherited. And and it's just a fact in this book in the in the in the epilogue does some gymnastics to try to explain why. I've got a lot of points about the epilogue, but we're far away from there. I really did not care for in this book. And and like I said, the the thing with the the rando Jedi's, that's that's just every Jedi was a rando at that point. That's fine. Um, I found the it's not even that I didn't care for it. It was just the weakest point of the book for me was Vader showing up on Alderaan. I liked the stuff with Bale outside of his interaction with Darth Vader. But when Vader shows up on Alderaan and, oh, they just all happen to be there all at the same time. And then they happen to run into R2-D2 and C-3PO. We don't we don't have to do that every single time. The only defense I'll give to that is this was 15 years ago. We hadn't done it a whole lot yet. I mean, this is this book came out, what, the same year as Revenge of the Sith? Uh, 2005. So, yeah. Yeah. This is this is one of the first books that came out in the aftermath of that story. So the fact that R2 and 3PO stay with Bale, the 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 fact that they 3PO's memory is wiped, all the details about Alderaan, just the visual of Alderaan. We had never seen it until the end of Revenge of the Sith. So so I, I understand what you're saying, but I think you're clouding that with all the stories since yeah. <laughs> because and, I and it's tough to not do no i yeah I, I i agree and i i felt that too but i had to you have to think about the fact that lucina was the first one diving into this pool and, until tonight i had forgotten entirely that this book was 15 years ago this is in that weird time too where it was almost like a soft reboot of between you know revenge of the sith and a new hope but they were kind of overriding some stuff, but not really. It was a weird. It was planned as part of this, though. It was planned because said Labyrinth of Evil, they yeah. gave to the same writer as the prequel to it. I mean, they yes, it, it kind of became a trilogy. But if you I when I read it, it Labyrinth of Evil came out before Revenge of the Sith and then Revenge of the Sith. The movie came out and then this book, right? This book is a direct response to the film. He's the first one. So so yes, there was a little awkwardness. I agree. I didn't need the R2 and 3PO stuff so much. But Vader visiting Alderaan, I was completely cool with because like, I don't know, Alderaan's important. And we never got to see it. <laughs> you know, like, I'm, I'm hoping one day we get a series or movies where we can actually see a thriving Alderaan. This gives us a little window. We do kind of from Claudia Gray later. Much, much later. And it, but this is the first time. Not not maybe. Yeah, this is one of the first times, at least, that Alderaan was ever dramatized at all. We learned anything about it. You know, well, all we had seen is a couple of shots in Revenge of the Sith. And we got to see what Brea looked like. And we got to see what that it all looked like. Uh, what's the place in uh, where all the elves live in uh, Rivendell? <laughs> Rivendell. <laughs> one thing that I've always thought nobody really ever played into. And I think Lucino picked up on is that when you get to A New Hope, Leia is very familiar with Vader. The way she talks to him, yeah. they've met before. Well, she's been hanging around the Senate a lot by that point. And this is all part of that history with Bale and everything. Well, you know? And so that's a question I had. I thought about this and that. And I don't think a big 
plot point that a lot of people have picked up on. Like, Bale knows. Bale knows who Vader is. Bale yeah. knows what's up with the Emperor. And it doesn't seem like he's shared this information with his friends. The first time he sees Vader, he's with Mon Mothma. And he is literally struck and fumbles when he sees Vader for the first time. He's standing right there talking to Mon Mothma. You, you're not going to let your buddy in on this? How does she eventually find out? She doesn't. Yeah. Nobody knows. But he doesn't say anything? If I'm the Rebellion... Day one, I'm making some pamphlets to say Sheev is an evil space wizard. Right. If Mon Mothma is my BFF and I'm trying to start a rebellion with her, I'm going to let her know why this is happening. Like, hey, buddy, so did you know that this is Anakin? Counterpoint. Bale thinks the only reason things aren't worse is because Palpatine thinks his identity is a secret. And if it gets out, Palpatine will have no need to pretend to have a Senate. He'll have no need to pretend to care about the people. I think Bale does it to protect the people around him. It is a secret that if someone knew he knew it, or if he told someone else, they would be murdered. But also, I think he needs Palpatine to think he got away with it. Huh. If everyone knows Palpatine's an evil space wizard, shit's going to get real bad. Worse. Because he won't have to even pretend anymore. So I think there is a political reason for Bale not to say anything to anybody. And to be fair, if you're just a member of the general public and you see Sheev, and you don't immediately think that's an evil space, space wizard, wizard. <laughs> then yeah. that's on you. <laughs> Bale also doesn't want to doesn't want to get involved in that anyway, because he knows where Obi-Wan and Yoda are, too. Yeah. And he doesn't want that information to get out to anybody. OK, Chad, suddenly I want a book about Bale. I've always wanted a book about Bale. I love Bale. <laughs> like, like I, I think Jimmy Smith did a pretty good job with him. He didn't get much time. But I think that scene in Revenge of the Sith where Bale's the one that shows up you know, because he's always been a friend of the Jedi. And when he shows up to the temple and sees uh, George Lucas's son getting murdered, <laughs> Zet, what's his name? Zet something? Yeah, the little something. kid? Ugh, something stupid. Zet nepotism. <laughs> but when he sees him fighting off those troopers, and, and I think a really cool scene where this little Padawan is fighting off these troopers and, and, and finally dies. And Bale is like, what the hell is going on here? Like Bale's the one witness. And so when... Stuff goes down 20 years later. He's the one person in the galaxy that can say, like, here's where you find Obi-Wan Kenobi. We need him. I think Bale's secret is vital. Later on, when Leia's older, he can couch his belief in the rebellion and the alliance. He can he can frame that just politically. He can just say, we have this emperor and we shouldn't have an emperor. We should have a republic. We are the alliance to restore the republic. That's not even going to trigger Palpatine. But if Palpatine knew that Bail Organa knew everything. Bale's a dead man. And whoever he tells is dead. It's a dark secret that he just doesn't want to expose anybody else to because what's he going to do with it? There's nothing he can do. He's not going to give a big speech and go, and by the way, you are a Sith Lord. 90% <laughs> of you in here don't believe in this fourth. I get that. But <laughs> he's a Sith Lord. You know, so I, I just don't think there's anything he can do with it. And so I, I like them having that. That is fair. And I am totally on board. I love the scene where he went to the temple. Yes. Where Vader goes yeah. to the Jedi temple. I just found it all too convenient, a plot device that the people on the spaceship happened to be accessing the archives at the exact moment Vader was there, but... They are not why we read this book. Yeah. No. They are not why 15 years later we were like, let's read that book again. That has nothing to do with them. I forgot they existed. So let's even let's just pretend they're not there. Let's not even worry about it for now. <laughs> he still sees blood on the floor. He still yes. sees 
scorch marks and carbon here's, scoring. Here's the wind whipping through, and it sounds like lightsabers to him. And I, I thought it was extremely effective. And it gives us far more detail about what happened in there than the movie did. Yes. It makes it so much more, even though it's happened in the past, and even though it's just this, even though it's just this cyborg, uh, this sad, sad emo goth cyborg walking through this temple, it felt so alive and tragic and vivid to me because it just gave us, gave me a real idea of what had happened in the temple that night that we never really had seen before. We get a, we get a little bit of, uh, is it Commander Apo? Captain Apo? Commander? He's Commander. Commander. Who led the the um the clone troopers into the temple, who dies in this book, but I believe is alive in canon. He's still the guy who led the attack. Yeah. I do feel like he's alive in canon. Well, I just don't think they've gone back to him. Yeah. Like this book doesn't count anymore and they haven't gone back to And that nobody's character. bothered to kill him. Yeah, nobody really cares. Yeah. So here's a question I have. So this prophecy deal that not that many people know about because it's a prophecy that only a few people have bothered to research and and pretty much just the council knows about but somehow in this book all of the jedi seem to know about this damn prophecy like was anakin just walking around the temple like hey chosen one here how you doing excuse me chosen one coming through what's (laughs) up hey have you met me i'm the chosen one how does everybody know about this prophecy because the when the the randos all meet up, they all look at each other like, oh, did you know Anakin? Oh, yeah, we knew Anakin was the chosen one. Oh, yeah, he's the chosen one. How does everybody know about this prophecy? I like to think that the Jedis are a bunch of gossips. <laughs> and so, Absolutely <laughs> are. When they let that little eight-year-old whiny kid into the order when they shouldn't have, it started going around. Why? You know, they don't have sex. It doesn't look like there's a whole lot to do at the temple. Like, they got gossip. That's pretty much what they got to entertain themselves. Is Jocasta New just sitting there, like, talking to everybody who comes into the library? Just like, you know it. My God, wait until you hear this. I vote for Catherine Hahn to play a young uh, (laughs) Jocasta New. You just want Catherine Hahn in everything now, though. I will say the one problem with the Vader story that I had was the moment in the end where he embraces that, where he calls himself the chosen one. Like, I know it was kind of ironic and it's meant to be kind of intimidating and cathartic. But yeah, I didn't I don't necessarily love that, but I don't necessarily love the prophecy stuff. I think they've done a better job in current canon with the prophecy than old canon did, than EU did. The taboo of it all, you know, like I think the prophecies were more every kid read them during this era. And in the in the in the new canon, they're more of the the Qui-Gon Jinn you know, like we learned in Master and Apprentice, where it was kind of like, and, and where we even seen in Light of the Jedi, where seeing the future is kind of considered dark side territory. That's true. They really don't talk about that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's not really something that's been addressed. So I guess, yeah, it just would have gotten around that the kid with the lightning scar in his head was the chosen one. <laughs> yeah. Which, I mean, you know, people probably ask questions like they're just having like a normal Jedi fight with some droids and some Jew- dude jumps out of a starship and destroys like 500 <laughs> of them at once while he's making quips and like... Hey, who's that guy? Uh, pretty sure he's the chosen one, bro. <laughs> and if he's not, I don't know who could be, who is. Like, you know, I mean, I, that could just have, it just could have been his nickname because of how good he was. They don't even need the prophecy. They're like, oh, look at the chosen one over here. Uh-huh. You know, like, I mean, I would like to see that. I would like to see young Anakin getting made fun of for being the chosen one. <laughs> Like, he totally would got bullied for it. Oh, yes. I want to see, like, Anakin at Hogwarts. I heard he called that girl an angel. 
<laughs> Absolutely. I would totally read that. So I have a thing on the epilogue. So before we get to that, what else do you guys have? Let's talk about old Kashyyyk for a little while. I did like how he presented Kashyyyk and that, you know, this running deep into the forest where basically the Empire can't find you and this is how they've always hid. And then yeah. the Empire goes, yeah, that's not going to work this time and just starts shooting. Oh, the one good thing about uh, doing audiobooks for this kind of stuff is that I know how to pronounce things on Kashyyyk. How do you pronounce the tree? Rosher. Is it Rosher? Is that how yeah, it's it? Rosher. And the city in this book is Kajirho, and Chewbacca's from Ruruko Roro. Wow. I mean, it sounds Wookiee. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, and that's how it's spelled. Uh, you were talking about R2 and 3PO. I could have done without Chewie. Yeah. Chewie and Tarful. Tarful, sure. Yeah, but they were both there when Yoda took off. So it makes sense to me that Chewie is still there because Lucino's just going with what he's been given. And again, my problem goes back to Lucas. I, don't, I wish Chewie hadn't been in Revenge of the Sith. I do too, but he's there. So we got to deal with it. Between him and R2, like they should have solved every question in the first like 45 minutes of A New Hope. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They know everything. Chewie knows Yoda. Chewie and R2 should have gotten together and been like, oh, you know Yoda? I know Yoda. Let's tell these guys what's happening. Here's what I want a writer to do. I want them to justify. I, they want to fix all this stuff. We want to we get a book about Anakin and Padme's relationship. We want to fix this. We want. I want to justify why R2 doesn't say a damn thing. He watched all of this happen. I have read both of the From a Certain Point of View books, and there is nothing. And I am actually kind of mad about it. Here's how I think you fix it. You go back to Revenge of the Sith and you add a subtitle just at the part where Obi-Wan starts to walk out of the ship and you just have R2 say something like, oh, look, Obi-Wan left Padme's apartment and now he's here to talk to you. And then Anakin goes nuts. So past that, R2 learns to keep his mouth shut. <laughs> I, I would accept that. My least favorite star wars novel i think like not i mean there's probably plenty of bad ones i don't remember but there was tatooine ghost i think it's a troy denning book where it's like han and leia on tatooine but it took place it was written i mean after the prequels and in it she is basically leia spends like the entire book watching recordings and learning everything about the prequels like from r2's databanks and from data pads and stuff or like they've just all of a sudden it's been unlocked because, you know, according to the book, R2 recorded like literally everything. And so she's she finds it. And I was like, no, I don't want her to find out everything about her mom. It was really awkward and stupid. I hated that book because it just because the audience now knows this information doesn't make it dramatically appropriate for the characters to now know all the information. And I don't like R2 having creepy sex tapes. That goes back to an old Lucas idea, right? And when one of the really old ideas is that all of this is from R2, like him relaying the information. He's the wills. Yeah. See, I would find that interesting, but... Somebody lay it out. But that's not the case yet, you know? Yeah. And, like, there's also the, you know, R2's not there for all of it. Um, He also, in this, I mean, he shuts himself down for a large part of the, apparently for years. And there's um, how we get out the of the era. sequels. <laughs> yeah, as it turns out, it was all R2's dream while he was shut down. So that part I've always found a little... You know, I, I mean, no, it's a cute joke at the end of uh, episode three where he says, uh, have the protocols memory wiped. I don't know why he doesn't say have them both wiped. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever, I guess, because he can't talk. But I mean, he, he can. There is a book and I don't remember which one, but Luke 
is is talking about how he never has or is it Anakin? I can't remember, but somebody is talking about how he never has R2's mind wiped or or memory wiped at the end of missions like is protocol because he retains star charts and, and all this information that is super useful. But that's what they're all for. That's what every astromech is for. I So why would wiping their memory get rid of make them incapable of doing their job? I'm just saying what I've read in a book. <laughs> I know that's no, it doesn't make any sense that that's what that's what Lando says about L3 and Solo. And that doesn't make any sense either. It's it's their cheap way of getting out of it without having to super get out of it. Oh, I'm not mad at you. I'm I'm just expressing the fact that. Oh, no, I agree. Right. It's a cheap way of getting <laughs> out of it. It's super cheap. <laughs> because it's like the astromech's job is an astrogation droid. So if you wiped his memory, it doesn't mean you have to wipe his data banks it doesn't mean you have to wipe what's on his hard drive you're just giving him a, a personality refresh go back to plagueis 114d he says how much of your memory can we wipe without affecting your core programming so there's obviously a limit why should that data be held in the same hard drive i don't know how droids work there should be a there should be a solid state drive <laughs> That is that is the operating system. And then, you know, they've got a, a, a couple of and they've got a couple of physical hard drives for all the data and stuff. I mean, look, why does R2 have a lightsaber launcher? It just is. <laughs> <laughs> why did nobody ever fix his little flying jets? Well, that's <laughs> listen, I'm not I'm not here to bag on the prequels. I don't I'm not I'm not a fan of flying R2. Oh, come on. I, I cheered a little bit when R2 took off. I was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. And why did nobody ever make him do that again? I mean, is that oil or is it lubricant that he shoots on them? Because I have questions for both. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, he does not. I'd prefer it be oil because I don't want to think about lubricant. It has to be lubricant. It has to be grease of some sort, right? They don't run on gasoline. There's no no oil, no fossil fuels required to run a droid. I agree. I liked this depiction of Kashyyyk. Again, I think he was going off of the Revenge of the Sith depiction. Yeah. Kashyyyk, though, is a planet that we had visited many times before the prequels, though. Not visually. Heir to the Empire. Mm-hmm. There's a huge sequence. You know, uh, Leia hides on Kashyyyk with Chewie in Heir to the Empire. I think you go there in one of the Nice the Old Republic games. I think. Oh, that's right. You, yes, and in uh, Force, Un- too, right? Force Unleashed. Yeah. I like that stuff on Kashyyyk. There was a little bit, and I'll, I'll agree with this, there was a little bit of, of a sightseeing element to it of, okay, now this prequels are over, we're going to go through some of our locations. Mm-hmm. They pretty much only went to places we already knew about. So there was a little bit of a tour of the galaxy type of thing that I don't always love. Well, yeah, because they brushed over places that these... Loser Jedi went because I mean, honestly, like three, two or three of them were only agriculture. They weren't even knights. They were just agricultural. They, the people who washed out and got sent to the farms. And I think that's a cool idea. I mean, that's who would have survived, right? Because right, they weren't with clones. They weren't in battle. All the powerful ones were leading armies. Mm-hmm. And and that is something I think is is kind of cool that could be explored in a side story of a different book i wouldn't want them to have their own book because i don't think that would be interesting enough i think for this book lucino had to have that story you have to have a frame like that and it's also been ever since i was a kid the dream of darth vader going around hunting down jedi has been something i've wanted to see forever and we don't get that actually in the movies at all 
they go to a bunch of other planets in this book that they just kind of brush over like, oh, yeah, we went here and didn't find anybody. We went here and didn't find anybody. Well, what happened there? Nothing good? Okay. My problem with them wasn't necessarily that they were in the book. My problem with them was, and again, this is completely unfair, Sewell and Gray and Ireland and Scott and I forget the last person's name. They... They have created a whole bunch of Jedi that were instantly likable, instantly unique, have a great energy about them. Um, um, they're they're fun to be around, but they're also these stoic, you know, monk, knight, warrior heroes. In this, they're all of them, even the one that's supposed to be our lead with Shrine, even the one that ends up sacrificing himself. They're all kind of boring. But like I said, they're boring in a very Lucas way of Lucas's vision of the Jedi. But I think they suffer from us seeing even, you know, I make fun of a lot, make fun of them a lot. But even characters like Rail Avaros, you know, kind of the the more fun Jedi that more recent authors have come up with. I think these people completely fit into this time period. And I also think they're also absolutely uninteresting to follow. Well, I feel like if Lucino had been given license to come up with his own Jedi with personalities, he he could have done a Loden great, great Storm or someone of that caliber. It's not his fault. It's it's absolutely the fault of the era. We're still in that warrior monk era, though. Yeah, they're, they're supposed to be monks. And Okay, Beth, what's your problem with the end? Uh, it's not a problem. During the epilogue, Obi-Wan is sitting on Tatooine, watching over baby Luke and and uh, Owen and Beru shopping, sitting in a cantina. So he sits there and thinks about the state of the galaxy and, and is watching the hollow net and thinks the truest things about the Jedi and the Republic that probably have ever been thought. And there are things that at least the three of us have all thought and I will snip out some quotes here. Do it. The Republic had never been worth fighting for. The Jedi had carried out missions of dubious merit. What they had failed to understand was that the Senate, the citizens of countless worlds and star systems, had allowed democracy to die. Stop the steal. <laughs> That's what we've been saying forever. Obi-Wan knows he's a failure and a loser, but he just learns it too late. Yeah. But he also knows that the the Republic and the Jedi were losers. And I think that's at least a little more interesting than him just thinking he completely failed. Because, I mean, although he did completely fail, everybody did. The Republic failed. The Jedi failed. Everybody everywhere failed. They done got took. Completely snowballed. They got sheaved. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I didn't like about the epilogue, I will say, how information travels in Star Wars is, I always raise an eyebrow whenever there's like something that feels a little too terrestrial in Star Wars sometimes. And I know it. I shouldn't feel that way, but when Obi-Wan's just at a bar watching the news, I don't know, it didn't didn't feel very Star Warsy to me. Um, And I, I don't know why that is. Um, but the fact that he'd be sitting there and watching Fox News at some canteen. Well, how how else is he going to get his news? These places are light years away from each other. <laughs> you know, like they, well, you they know, say they say that he's get like the 
sports fans are watching the events happen weeks later. So it's old news, but it's all the news you're going to get on Tatooine. I, I wouldn't have expected the and I guess this is one departure. One problem I had with Palpatine at the end of this book is when he decides it's time for the galaxy to hear about Darth Vader. I didn't like that. I didn't like the idea of him making him into a poster child. <laughs> Does everyone see him on the news where he just hears the name? He just hears it. He hears it in connection with the Kashyyyk deal. Yes. Yeah, so to me, Vader should be extra legal out of the system. He should, you know, the news shouldn't be like Imperial Envoy Darth Vader. No, Vader's there, but. No, he, he should be like the, the Black Ops Enforcer. That should be Tarkin. Like they should be like, and here's right. Tarkin. People that are in the know, people that work in Coruscant, like people know who he is, but he he's not. But people, you know, sitting out in, in on Tatooine or any place out in the outer outer rim should to me should never hear the word Darth Vader. And by word, I mean two words, <laughs> um, but but should never hear the name Darth Vader. That 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 part I, I don't love. But I agree with you that Obi-Wan's kind of he's not I think he's drinking water. So he's not his drunken <laughs> thoughts, but. His his feelings on the crumbling of it all were were really, really great and really felt in character. And his reaction to finding out that Anakin is alive, which is something that, of course, people in the new canon are waiting to figure out how he discovers it. Tune into Disney Plus, I guess. I, I just didn't see another way for it to happen in the way that they wanted it to happen. I mean, I don't feel like it had to happen, but I do enjoy him. Coming to these realizations that we have all felt for a long time. Well, eventually, Obi-Wan has to find out because mm -hmm. he knows he knows in A New Hope. So he has to find out. But how and when and, you know, I, that's almost something I'd rather just kind of not know <laughs> because because sometimes because the explanation is pretty clunky. I wanted to uh, I just stumbled upon this in the book. We had talked about Mustafar. And in, in how, you know, this is before Castle Vader. Castle Vader didn't come about until Rogue One. This version of Castle Vader didn't come about until Rogue One. And in, in the EU, he had a castle, but it wasn't on Mustafar because Mustafar didn't exist until 2005. But there's a passage in the book near, in chapter 28. It's only about halfway through where he says um, Palpatine's talking about he had sent Vader on a mission and it didn't go well or whatever. And he said, instead of helping Vader come to terms with his choices, the specious mission had muddled his emotions and perhaps made matters worse. What is to be done with him? Sidious thought. Perhaps I will have to send him back to Mustafar as well. Even Lucino going like, well, maybe he should, maybe we had to jumpstart him on Mustafar. Turns out he will also like the real estate, I guess, once he gets there. <laughs> Which is kind of what happened in the comics right now. Yeah. No, yeah, the comic, I mean, the comics are kind of like taking the relationship of Vader and Sidious in the, this book and blowing it up. Mm -hmm into a huge, like almost battle royale between the two of them. And it's appropriate too. And it, to me, it fits with this book because Palpatine's doing that because it's, he feels that Vader has gone soft after his encounter with Luke in the same way that in this book, Palpatine thinks Vader needs to toughen up. He's still too soft, you know, that, that, that the events and losing Padme and all these things that he's too, he's still too Anakin. And I think, in the current comics where he's battling post empire Vader, where he's trying, you know, he's thinking that shit, he's starting to sound a little more like Anakin or feel a little more like Anakin. And, and so I think they actually work in the same way. The idea that Palpatine's like, has to 
keep pumping him full because at his core, Anakin is a hero. At his core, he is a good person. At his core, he is the chosen one. And Palpatine has to pump him full of hatred and fear and lies constantly, afraid of, as Kylo Ren would later be, afraid of the light is something that I really got out of this relationship between the two of them. Vader's a, a process, not a product. You gotta keep sheaving him. <laughs> yeah, I did like near the end when people started calling him Lord Vader. It was like a line where he's like, this is how I will be greeted from now on wherever I set foot. Like he's starting to kind of... He, he's starting to become Vader. Anakin was gone, a memory so deeply buried he might have dreamed it rather than dreamed it rather than lived it. The force as Anakin knew it was interred with him and inseparable from him. I keep I would love everyone to just if they can find a copy, just read chapter 10 just for the very detailed description that Lucino gives of how Darth Vader is built. We've all seen it and we've got the light box and you've got the helmet and you've got the shoulders and you've got. But how is he actually built? What are those connected to? What is left of Anakin? And then what is Vader? And I I think that stuff is fascinating and nerdy as hell. (laughs) So in you guys' opinions, what is keeping this book from being canon? The lack of chips. No chips. That's the big thing right off the bat, right? Is that they're that the clones are kind of just doing it because they're told and there's no chips. I do like the that the uh, clones are just like, you know what? You're cool. You saved my life. I appreciate that. I'm going to let you go. Oh, I'm not 100 percent on board on board with the chips. So like it doesn't bother me one way or another, but that definitely does not fit into canon. I think that was about it. I mean, I guess you could say all these Jedi out there, but they all just kind of go and get day jobs. It sounds like. Can you imagine like some poor Jedi working at like the Circle K and then an Inquisitor comes in spinning that thing over his head because they've hunted you down? I'll be on my break. I I want like a Dunder Mifflin. I want the office, but an Inquisitor busts in. It turns out it turns out Dwight used to was a Padawan who is totally believable, too. Who did this and, and went out into the wild and and, and retired. <laughs> yeah, the Inquisitor walks in and Halpert looks right. And then Jim looks right at the camera and rolls his eyes. Yeah, it'd be great. There's a lot of talk in here about them growing a bunch of new stormtroopers. Yeah. Which I'm not sure is something that held up, right? Well, there's a lot of back and forth, too, because they, they switch back and forth between calling them clone troopers and stormtroopers. And, and they were all clone troopers at that point. I think that depends on whose side you're on. Yeah. <laughs> I think if they're on your side, they're clone troopers. If they're on the other side, they're stormtroopers. Um, I, I believe I actually believe Hitler called them clone troopers. <laughs> so maybe that doesn't quite hold up uh, some of that. But uh, all in all, I think if you lopped off, it's if you lopped off the whole first book because Vader doesn't show up for the whole first section. It's all about these little Jedi outcasts or fallen order Jedi or whatever whatever story you're reading that has to do with a Jedi that survived order 66. There's a lot of them. But besides that, I think once you get past that, it would hold up pretty well. Like much of Lucino. I think it does. Uh, We're going to stay with legends for another, another two weeks waiting for what are we waiting for? Ryan 
there's this trilogy you may have heard about called the Alphabet Squadron. Yeah. <laughs> I happen to enjoy it a lot. Victory's Price is coming. So Victor's Price is coming. We'll be doing that in two episodes. But next week, we're going to stay in Legends. I, I think what we're going to try to do here is we're going to we have several. Would you say we've got more a more regular schedule happening right now? Or at least it seems like there's more books on the slate at better intervals right now. Yeah, absolutely. Like that every at least every month or maybe every two months, we're going to have a new book to read. Yeah. Something that's become a priority here on the show is to get those books read as fast as possible and those episodes up as fast as possible or not as fast as possible, but in a timely manner. But there is downtime in between. So we're going to stay in Legends and we're going to go back. How far back? Way back. We're going to go back to about 25,000 years before the Battle of Yavin and read Dawn of the Jedi Into the Void by Tim Lebin. Dawn of the Jedi was a new era that they tried to get off the ground in like 2013. There was this book and there were a couple of comics, but then Disney bought Star Wars and Lucasfilm. Whether or not this was ever going to spin off into its own era or not, we will never know. But Dawn of the Jedi is about that very thing. It is about basically the first generations of Jedi. Spoilers, they will not be going to Octo. There will be no fish nuns. Uh, I think the comic book was by John Ostrander. I'm going to go back and try to read that if I still have it. And uh, yeah, so Into the Void by Tim Levin. I think it'll be interesting to see what this vision of the beginning of the Jedi is, especially since we think that maybe the uh, the Taika movie is going to be doing the same thing. Yeah, there's been hints between that and some things that happened on Mandalorian that tie into this book that make it seem like Disney's interested. So thank you guys for joining us tonight for Dark Lord, The Rise of Darth Vader. Please stay tuned for next time when we'll be exploring some more legends. You just got sheaved. Happy anniversary. You have been listening to a Needless Things podcast. You can follow Needless Things on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and at NeedlessThingsPodcast.com. Love you. Mean it. Uh Uh-huh. Roger, roger!